Father, we are, are so thankful. We, we are thankful, first of all, that you would, by your providence, cause us to slow down at times, mm-hmm. to, to reflect, Lord, how much do we have to be thankful for? Lord, we don't want to be those who would fail to give you glory, who would fail to be thankful for you, who would, who, who would exalt in our, our idols over exalting in recognize that every good and perfect gift comes from you. And so, Father, we thank you for this, the time that we've had and the, and over the last week to, to, to be thankful and to remember how much we have to be thankful for and, and realize that, that that thankfulness implies someone to be thankful to, to you as the one who is the giver all good things. And Father, we thank you that that, that leads us into this next season of, of Advent, of considering the, the birth of your Son, of, of sending your Son, God the Son, to take on flesh, Lord, to, to rescue us from sin and death through his life and death and resurrection. And Father, we pray that, and we thank you again, that you would cause us to, to slow down in the midst of all the craziness that the weather brings and the season brings and the holidays of Christmas brings, and, but that we would have those times to, to slow down and set apart and, and follow the example of Mary to cherish those things up in our hearts. So we thank you for, for all these good things. We thank you for your word that would reveal these truths to us. And, and, and we thank you for the ability to, to know your word, to study your word, to, to grow in our knowledge of your word, and, and to be edified by, by other believers, and even other believers in positions by other believers that we would disagree with, but that would cause us to think more deeply about your word and what you've revealed. And we pray that that, that would happen this morning, Lord, that as we would consider these positions about, as we expect and are excited about and, and, and await your return, Lord, and, and the, 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 the second coming of, of your Son. Lord, as we would think upon those things, that we would be edified as we would consider the areas that, that we can grow in as we would disagree with, with some of our brothers on these positions of eschatology. We pray that you'd use that for your glory and for the edification of, your, our, of our church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we've been talking about eschatology or the doctrine of the last things. We talked about that we have much to agree on. There is much more that Christians have to agree on than to disagree on. And, and the fact of our personal eschatology of what awaits us personally um, when, we, when we die, that death is coming for all of us, but death is a conquered enemy in the sense that, that death ushers us into the presence of the Lord. That we had talked about general eschatology, the future of the entire universe. And we said that there's more, to, again, to agree on than disagree on with our Christian brothers and sisters. And that, that, that we are eagerly awaiting Christ's return. That there, that, that there are some differences of how the timing and the, the order of some of those things work. But we, we all would agree that, that Christ is returning. And that, that we wait and live in eager expectation for, for his return. But as we started looking at two weeks ago, that... that probably the major disagreement comes from that one chapter in Scripture. So why don't you turn there again to Revelation chapter 20. So when you look at the disagreements between us and between Christian brothers and sisters and saying, where is the disagreement? It, it, for a large part, centers on this chapter of Scripture, this this, this chapter on, on what we'd call the millennium. And, um, and so as we see, and, and, you know, let me just, just, just start us off right. And, uh, let me, let me read there. Let me just read this again. Chapter 20, Revelation chapter 20. 
Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And also I saw the souls of those who'd been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshiped the beasts or its image and had not received them, its mark on their, uh, on their foreheads and their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no, no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So this thousand years, the, this millennium, there are three views historically amongst different Christians. We looked at two weeks ago, the idea of amillennialism, that, that in Greek, that the, if you have an a, an a before a word, it means no. So um, atheist, right? No theism, no, no belief in God, right? The, theos, theos God. A millennium is no millennium in the sense of a, a um, I guess you could say literal thousand year period at the end that, that they would say that the millennium is fulfilled between the, the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. They would actually prefer the term realized millennium or idealized millennium, that, that the millennium is already being realized. And so as we looked at, and I'll, I'll draw this so that we can have it for our next one as well. If we look at kind of a timeline and we look at the, at the, the period of the Old Testament, and then we see we have Christ coming here. And then we have um, uh, the, the, the current age, and then we have the eternal state. Um, instead of viewing this, this tribulation and millennium in between the current time, which we would call the church age, um, at, least, at least that's an easy way to put it, um, in between the church age and the eternal state, we would say, oh, well, there's, a, there's a, uh, a tribulation coming and a, a millennium coming. They would say, no, all of that is actually being realized right now so that during this time, we experience the tribulation. And we also experiencing the blessings of God's kingdom in Christ's millennial reign from, from heaven. So that is, that is what they would say. And, and as I said, it, it, we don't want to just put a caricature. Oh, how can they think this? Well, why do they think this? The way they think this is because of the way that they would read Revelation. They would read the book of Revelation as a series of, of a, circular, a circular pattern. So in very similar to where you look at the book of Daniel and in the book of Daniel, you would have um, a, a vision and you have the vision of, of all of history from um, from uh, uh, not from from, from um, not Babylon. I'm thinking uh, before Babylon. I'm I'm blanking now. Assyria, yeah, from Assyria all the way up through Rome, right? And then you have in the next chapter another vision that gives the whole picture again, right? You're giving these 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 circular pictures where it kind of gives the whole picture and then it starts all over, gives another picture. Similar with John and First John. John will talk about talk about loving the brothers and, and repenting from sin and believing in the in, in the truth of Jesus coming in the flesh, and then John starts all over again. You know, and, and, and he gives this circular kind of, of description. And and the would read Revelation 
Revelation, as we looked at two weeks ago, as this circular pattern. It talks about the whole thing, everything ends in this great earthquake and everything's destroyed. And then the next set series of seven of completion, right? The next series of seven gives another whole picture of this of this age, and they say the millennium picture is just another picture of this circular, all describing the the, the current age. <laughs> now, um, so it's not a, it's not an out there. It actually, you read Revelation, and there's some interesting ways of, of reading Revelation that way. The problem is 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 that how John in the text is describing what's going on? And, and, and as we saw, I say there's problems. I think that there's brilliant people who are looking at this. As I said, if you want to know maybe the best position, uh, Greg Beal's commentary on Revelation it, it does this. But here's the problems. The problems are it doesn't. They're, they're importing this idea, this interpretation of this circular um, progression into Revelation 20, where it doesn't seem to support that. And this aspect of, they're, they're, they're trying to explain away this, this, this these, these, there's a first resurrection, resurrection impl- implying that there's a second resurrection as well. Of, of, um, and they're saying, well, the first one must be a spiritual resurrection, and the second one must be the physical resurrection. And, but in the text that John uses, he uses the exact same verse in the exact same context, and, and, and that doesn't make sense. Second of all, they would say, well, yes, it says Satan is bound, um, but in, in other scriptures seems to, see, seems to say Satan is pretty active. He, he's uh, you know, about like a roaring lion seeking to devour. And so again, they're trying to explain that away. Um, and I think that there, there's issues with that, of that view of, of, of that during this age of Satan being bound. As well as there's the problems we saw of the Old Testament pictures, that Old Testament gives future pictures of the Messiah reigning of Jesus, we would say Jesus is the fulfillment of that reigning on earth, and yet there's still being things like age, aging, and death, where it's longer. There's a perfectedness in the sense of it's more, more, more perfect, but it's not quite eternal state. So in those, those, those pictures of what is to come there, that there there's, there's some issues with the amillennial position. I think that there's, a, it's a, um, there's some, some really... Um, brothers and sisters in Christ who love the Lord and love his word and are trying to be faithful in interpreting his word. And so I don't want to um, uh, uh, just mock their position, but I think that there's some, some problems. That's the reason that I don't hold that. That's why our church doesn't hold, hold that position. And so that is the first position. Uh, any, any questions there on amillennialism before we keep going? And I just think we're going to roll into uh, Christ's return yep. whenever he feels like it. Yeah, so th- there's a certain point, if, if, and, and again, because these aren't my positions, what I'm, what my goal is I want to present them in a way that it's not a caricature, but all the nuances, I don't, I don't know. And, and for my belief, even reading a little bit, it seems like there's some disagreement of there's some that would hold that at the end of this age, there's, there's kind of a, a rapture. Um, and then a, a fulfillment of a tr- rapture. God kind of destroys and remakes the world, right? I, I, you know, P- Second Peter style, eternal state, right? Others, I think, kind of see almost a, a really clear transition. And, and there's some that would kind of question where the rapture fits in there. So there's some different disagreements there. So I, I don't know. I, I would have to, I'd have to go look at more. And I just, uh, yeah, you'd probably have to have someone who hold that position that gives some of the nuances on some of those. Yeah. So... Similar to the next position. The next position um, is post-millennialism. And, and I'll be honest, and I was, I was, I was hoping, and it just, I've been busy, that, that I was hoping to try to sit down with someone who is post-millennial. I, I, I've been told that there, there's a, a brother in town that is, and, and to hear from him, because all I've ever heard of a post-millennial position is a caricature, kind of a making fun of, oh, isn't this so ridiculous? But the pro- here's the problem. There are believers throughout history that are so much more gifted and bright 
and, and brilliant theologians that have held this position. So to kind of go, oh, that's so silly. I, I think that it, 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 we lose what we could gain for trying to understand why do they believe this way. And are th- there are things that we can gain in the nuances of our position of, of seeing the strengths that are there to, to be able to, to, to appreciate that. So, so for instance, throughout this, this position has been held by St. Augustine, uh, Jonathan Edwards. So, so that's someone saying he's probably one of those brilliant minds that have ever is, uh, brilliant Americans that have ever existed. So to say, oh, Edwards, he's so, he, just doesn't, he just didn't know. I know better than him. I, well, I have a little humility there. B.B. Uh, Warfield, B.B. Warfield held this position. Uh, John Owen r- reportedly held this position. So some brilliant minds, some brilliant believers. And so here's what this position is. This position is the idea. So again, we've got uh, Old Testament, and then we have um, the, we have the, the, the church church here. We have the, the 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 eternal state. And so, what this position is is that Christ um, is that that there is a millennium, but and, and I guess you could, in a way that let's see, how are we doing this here? Um, so that there is. There is a millennium, but they would also agree with more on the amillennialists that the millennium is occurring um, now, and and they and then we actually bring in. We are going to actually progress. The church is going to progress so much that the church is what's going to bring in Christ's return and the eternal state. So, in a sense, that that the church is going to the gospel. The church's influence of the gospel is going to make such an impact on society. It's going to actually bring in not just this tribulation slash millennium, but that the world's broken and we're experiencing tribulation, but we're also experiencing the blessings of the millennium, like the, like the uh, millennials said. They would say, most of them, that the tribulation already happened. Most would say that the tribulation happened um, at, at 70, uh, up to 70 A.D., and since 70 AD, we're actually living in this kind of pre-millennial state and that we're going to actually bring in the millennium so that the church, actually, I probably should put it this way. Here's the church age. The church is going to bring in the millennium, but Christ doesn't come, doesn't come back until after the millennium. So the church is actually going to bring about this perfect millennial earth because of the, our influence with the gospel. Yes. Well, I'm not for the millennium period, either which way, any way you go for it. I don't okay. like it. I know it's scriptural, but I don't like it. I want him dead. <laughs> but anyway, Satan is bound in the millennium, no matter which way what, right? Yes. But, but there's still a lot of sin going on. Yes, so they would say... Uh, similar with amillennialists. and post, a lot of postmillennialists, when they abandon postmillennialism, they turn into amillennialists. So there's a lot of overlap between those two positions. But they would say during this time, when Satan's bound, um, they would say Satan is bound, but the flesh is still active, uh, the world is still active, that there are still other other things that are active that we are feeling. But Satan himself has been removed of his power and influence. And they would say that's the reason why the gospel's effective. They would say the reason why the gospel's effective is because Satan no longer has authority because he's bound. My point was saying, well, I think in the Old Testament, you see that, that, that the gospel being effective too. You see people getting saved in the Old Testament too. And so I would say, well, I have some issues there. But that, that's the argument that would be made. 
is that Satan's bound, but you still see a brokenness because the world is still active and the flesh is still active. Um, and, and I'm not sure what they would say, maybe demonic influence, of, 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 but, but Satan himself is, is bound and removed of his authority. But the interesting part, Craig, is that the angel comes down and binds him. So when did that happen? Yeah, they would say it's a spiritual reality, right? It's a spiritual, it's a spiritual reality, not, <laughs> not, not, a, not a physically seeing this happen. Yes, yeah. Yeah, it, se- it seems to, but then again, it, it, it seems to, but then again, you're looking at Revelation and there are parts of Revelation where you, that, that, that there's parts of Revelation that they're clearly that the world sees the same things John's seeing, and there's other parts of Revelation, it seems that they're almost like spiritual throne room truths that John is seeing that the world wouldn't see, and so, so they, they I, I'm guessing, and I don't want to assume, but I'm guessing they would say that that is, is, is more of that, 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 that um, kind of spiritual realm picture um, there, so... Um, but so, so, so this argument is similar in the sense that, that the millennium is brought in more in a current time, but this is in the sense of it's not that, that Christ is reigning through his church, it's that, that we're actually going to bring about this millennium, this perfect millennium of a uh, perfect, kind of perfect earth, then Christ returns to bring in the fullness of this eternal state. Um, so it's, it's, it's an optimistic view. It's a, it's a view of, of progress. The church is going to, it's, it's so optimistic about the church, so optimistic about the gospel, so optimistic about the progress of the church that, 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 that we're going to see more and more percentages of populations of, of the nations become Christians, that those populations are going to have significant influence on society, and we're going to, the church is going to bring this, uh, this millennial age of peace and righteousness on earth. Um, B.B. Warfield called this eschatological universalism, that, that, that we are, gonna, as a church, going to bring about uh, universally the, the promises uh, of, of, uh, that are to come. Yes? Is this the view that was held uh, specifically before World War, World War I? Yeah, yeah. After World War I, now I was going to cover that historically in a second. After World War I, there was a... Um, so then, then, real quick, though, uh, after, a, after a period of time when the church is going to bring about this peace... Could be a thousand years. Some people would say it's different. You know, it's, it's symbolic. Then um, everyone, all the rest of the dead are going to be raised. All the dead are going to be raised, and then you're going to have the final eternal state. But you're right. This was this was a popular view up until from about the fourth century. We don't really find a lot of evidence of this view before the fourth century, um, and the reason is is because you start looking what happened in the fourth century. In the fourth century is when the world really started to become Christianized, right? Is that you started looking at it from Constantine on? Is that, 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 that the Roman Empire is becoming Christianized? That there's a Christian influence that wherever the Roman Empire went, the Christian gospel went to where that I would say wasn't true conversions, but you were kind of converting the world in the sense of they, Rome would take over a new territory and say, convert to Christianity or die. I would say, I don't think that's how the gospel works. Um, but they would say, look at the influence that Christianity is having on the world. The world is becoming more and more Christian. And so you have things like, like that's why Augustine was, was, was holding this view of saying, look, look at the influence that Christianity is having. We're going to bring in the promises of the millennium. And that was held throughout. If you look through, throughout what was going on in these other periods, you look at that, then you look at, yeah, there was a the dark age, but you look at the Reformation. Why were some of the reformers looking at this as, as a possible eschatology? Because they're saying, look at the influence that the gospel's having in, in Switzerland, right? Look at the influence the gospel's having in Germany. Look at the way the, the gospel is having influence in, in, in England with, through the Puritans. And you're looking at the influence that it's having on society, saying, well, it seems to fit evidentially and historically. Then you look at the First Great Awakening with, with Jonathan Edwards, right? The First Great Awakening happens, and literally all vices disappear from New England because everyone's getting saved. 
And so no one's getting drunk anymore. No one's going to, 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 to you know, houses of, 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 of uh, uh, illicit activity anymore because everyone's getting saved and they're all spending all their time in church. So it seems like that the Spirit's going to use this church to bring in this, this perfect age. And, and our brother here is right, is that, that, that all this came crashing at World War I. After World War I, you, you just, there are, there are post-millennialists, um, but, but we're going to look at this as a, kind of a different version um, called partial preterism. And, and that is what you'd see more today because World War I, it kind of broke the idea of optimism and progress, right? That, that, that things are going to get better and better and better and, that, and, and the influence of the church is making people more moral and moral and moral, right? It, 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 it World War I, it kind of broke that because of the mass destruction and, 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 and really the realism of, of what, how depraved humanity is and, 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 and how that affects one another. And so you, after World War I, most post-millennialists, you see kind of transition to being amillennialists because of the, there's some similarities, but they don't see this, this optimism, this progress. Does that make sense? Questions there? Yeah. There you go. <laughs> now, here's, here's where I wanted to, to really dig in. And this is good for me. I'm glad that I just didn't have that video in, in the end because it made me dig in and saying, why do they believe this biblically? I, you know, it's not just a theological system, but what are the biblical convictions that make them believe this, right? What do they do with Revelation? Here's the thing. When you read, when you read especially Warfield um, and, and you read others on this, the focus is not on Revelation. Revelation is being interpreted through the lens of other scripture. They would say, let scripture interpret scripture. Revelation is more unclear. These other scriptures are more clear. So we're going to use these other scriptures to interpret Revelation. Well, what are the other scriptures? Uh, Matthew 28, right? Great commission. You can turn there if you want, but we know it, right? Therefore, all, author- uh, 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 all of authority has been given to me, and therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all, all that I've commanded you. So Great Commission seems to say that the gospel is going to spread where? The entire world, all nations. Every nation in the world is going to be impacted by the gospel. I mean, that seems to imply progress. It seems to imply this, this progress, this growth, this optimistic view of the spread of Christianity. The Old Testament gives the same picture, right? Um, I think I put it on your sheet. We won't look there, but Psalm 47, Psalm 72, Psalm 100, Isaiah 45, Hosea 2 talks about that, that in the end, all the nations are going to come to know God. That's a similar language of Matthew 28, right? All nations, all the nations, all the Gentiles are coming to know God. So if all the nations are going to include disciples of Jesus and all the nations are going to come to know God, wouldn't it make sense that those nations then would be transformed culturally? That's the argument here. Is that if you look at the, God, the Great Commission, wouldn't it, seem to, they would say, wouldn't it seem to imply a successful Great Commission, which would imply the church is bringing about what Jesus had promised? And then you see this influence from that in, in, this, perf- in this peaceful, righteous earth. Um, second one, here, here we, 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 we will turn. Turn to Matthew 13. <laughs> now again, I, we're gonna, I, I, there are some issues, I think, with this position, and this is not my position, but I, I want to I present the position as good as I hope that they would present it so we'd understand why, what is, what is it, the reasoning of this? Um, 
Matthew 13 talks about these kingdom parables. What is the kingdom of God like? How is God working in his kingdom work? Verse 31 and 32. Jesus put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. So here's this parable that describes the the, the growth. The kingdom is going to start like it's nothing and it's going to grow to be so large. It's going to be like it, it, it affects the whole earth right? The birds of the air are going to come and make nests in its branches because it, its influence is going to spread so far. That's the interpretation that they would look at here. And then 33, he gives another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. So this leaven is the kingdom of God working through the gospel of Christ, and it's going to spread through the whole batch of bread. So it's say if you look at the, the way that they would say, if you look at the way that God's kingdom works, the, the way that God's kingdom is that, that in the end, the kingdom is going to spread everywhere. And so they would say, that would seem to, to indicate that this, 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 this coming of, that the church has this influence, this millennial influence throughout the whole world. And then their third argument that they would give is, is an, uh, uh, an aspect through evidence. And before we, we disagree with that, we would say there is something to agree about here. That there is, can we agree that there is a greater and greater expanse of gospel mission? That, that there are more Christians today than there were 100 years ago and 200 years ago and 300 years ago, right? That the gospel is in more nations and more places in the world than it has ever been, right? We'd say, yes, there is an expansion of the earth. And, and, and even when there's persecution, that persecution seems to even bring about a greater expanse in gospel mission, right? So it seems like there's this growth of gospel mission, they would say. Also, they would say, look at the influence of Christianity on things like science, right? Nowadays, science is, is it's funny because the, the, our secular society and, and culture would say science is purely atheistic, right? Science is agnostic, at least, of where the, the idea of religion should be removed from science. And yet, if you look at it, there's a couple of really good books out there, and I can't remember what they're, they're called, but, but they look at the history of science, and you look at the, 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 really the foundational pillars of the scientific method, and they're all Christians. The, the, the foundation, like, like Mendel, uh, Mendel, right, was the founder of genetics. He's a monk, Christian monk. Why is it that, that the foundation of, of, of scientific method from whether from astronomy or biology or chemistry, that the, it's grounded and founded by, by Christians because there are some foundational presuppositions that you have to have if you're doing science, right? Foundational presuppositions like that the world is such and so in order that if you perform the same experiment over and over and over again, that you're going to get the same results, Right? or that you should get the same results. And if you're not getting the same results, there's a problem with you, not with nature, not with creation, because creation is ordered. Creation is made perfect to where that there are these natural laws, there's these natural truths that govern the way that's, that, 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 that the world works so that science is possible, so that the scientific method is possible. What does that come from? It comes from Christianity, 
right? And so you look at the discoveries techno- technologically and you look at the discoveries medically and the, the reason that we have the medical technology, you, you say, yes, there's a lot of non-Christians who have developed those, but why is that possible? And, and, and those who are post-millennial would say it's because of the Christian influence on, on society and, and, and the very idea of the very scientific method. Right? So they would say, do you see the Christian influence and, and how that's had an influence there? So they would say, through experience, can't you see how there's this, this greater influence that's come through through the church? So that's the, that is the, the, the scriptures that they would... Now, you notice they don't really deal with revelation. I mean, I was looking... And there are, we're going to look at how they deal with Revelation. But Revelation is, is, is I think as one systematic theology said, Revelation is a side note of what do you do with the millennium. That, that really it's saying, they would say, these are clear pictures of what God's doing. Revelation is unclear. So we're going to interpret Revelation in light of the Great Commission and these other parables and, 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 and what we see that God's doing in the world. I think there's some problems hermeneutically, Right. Because Revelation, there are some unclear things about Revelation, but the Revelation is pretty clear about this. There is, you know, maybe you don't know what to do with it. Maybe it's difficult, but as Tony said, it's biblical. It's right there. You can't just go, oh yeah, there's that millennium thing. Right there, there is, there is some clear text that you have to wrestle with. And, and you can't just wrestle with them secondarily of, here's my theology I've developed from these texts. And I guess we'll just try to find, Revela- find a way to fit those, those details in, which is really what's, what's done. And so, so that's, the, that's the problem. But first of all, even before we get to that, here's an evaluation. Here's the problem. There's the problems with even their texts, which I would call proof texts, right? There's a theology and there's some texts that seem to support that. But I think that they're, even the texts that they use, I think are taken out of, out of context, right? The Great Commission. Is the Great Commission a, a picture of worldwide Christianization? No. It is a command. And, and what does it mean to make disciples of all nations? When, when Jesus says all nations, when the Bible uses, the Old Testament uses this idea of nations, Jesus is not thinking geopolitical, right? He's not thinking United Nations. That is a modern idea. These modern idea of geopolitical nations is, is not what Jesus means when he says, go and make disciples of all nations. He's not saying, okay, now Germany is going to be all disciples and, and Japan's going to be all disciples. That is, the, the geopolitical entities is a modern notion, not, not this idea. So when, and John Piper in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, does a really good job on this. When, when the Old Testament talks about the nations, when Jesus and the Great Commission talked about the nations, he's, he's talking about people groups, He's talking about that you're reaching these different people groups with the gospel, not that you are having a geopolitical influence of Christianization. It is a modern misreading of the text. Um, second of all, when you look at those kingdom parables, and if you're still in there in Matthew 13, does the kingdom parable say that the, end, is, is the kingdom's going to, to Christianize the world? Is that the point of the parables? See, parables, you can read a lot into parables. If you ever want to read a, a lot into parables, you can look up uh, Origen's view of the parable of um, the uh, prodigal son. And man, like everything in there has some allegorical detail and you just read all this stuff in there and you go, did Jesus mean that? No. Jesus is, it's very, parables are meant to teach simple points. So is Jesus giving this, this picture in this parable about worldwide Christianization and this picture of the Great Commission before the Great Commission is ever given? No, he's just talking about that the kingdom, it looks like it's, it's, it like it's going to do nothing. 
that Jesus and disciples, it looked like they have no influence. But when it's all said and done, that that's what God's going to use. Right? It, it's a simple point. It's not talking about this, this, this preview of the Great Commission and this worldwide Christianization. There's, there's, they're reading way too much of those parables. And there's also problems with observations, right? So yes, can we see that there's been a growth in gospel influence and a growth in, 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 in Christian influence? Yes. But have we seen other things as well? Mm-hmm. What else have we seen? What other kinds of growth? Growth of evil. Yeah. Then we've also seen that the evil is to an unprecedented level of sinful lifestyles, of rebellion, of war, of atheism, of secularism, of false religion. That it's growth. And the best argument I could find from a post-millennialist is saying, oh, it's just a blip. It's just a blip. It's going to turn around. And, and we kind of had a little blip. And then we're going to turn back around and eventually make things right. All, all right. And, and I think that but the problem is if you're looking by observation, I think that's, we want to look from Scripture first and, and let Scripture interpret our observation, not observation interpret Scripture. And, and most, here's what's most important, is that what do you do with Revelation and what do you do with these passages? And time-wise, I'm just going to read them for you about what the New Testament talks about the last days. Luke 18, 8. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he even find faith on earth? Right? 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 and 4. When Christ comes, the rebellion must come first, Paul says. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5, in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. He describes all this, this, this growth of sinful behavior. Matthew 24, 15 through 31 talks about the great tribulation. So what do you do with this idea of the tribulation? What do you do with this idea of Revelation 20? There's two different ways that post-millennials deal with this. B.B. Warfield, the exception, he says that Revelation 20 is describing a spiritual state, an intermediate state. Revelation 20 is what, what it's like when you die and you go be with the Lord. That's what Revelation 20 is about, which I think is really forcing Revelation into something it's not saying. The most common is what's called partial preterism. That's what I wrote up here. If you meet a, a lot of post-millennials today, the closest you're going to have is what's called partial preterism. And this is what it is here. Here's partial preterism. Preterism comes from the Latin preterer, uh, which is a prefix meaning past or beyond. It's saying that, 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 that we are beyond some of the things that Jesus has promised. They've already happened. So what they would say is that this time, up until the destruction of the temple in the 70 AD, they would say when Matthew talks about the tribulation and these tribulation things that are coming, when uh, uh, Revelation talks about this, this, these difficult times and tribulation and judgments in Revelation 6 through 18, they would say all of this is fulfilled in 70 AD. That is the end of the tribulation. Tribulation's already happened. They would say it's partial. The li- there's a liberal version that would say, yeah, Jesus was supposed to return and he didn't, so the Bible's wrong. That's, but partial predators would say it happened in part. Everything except the return of Christ has already happened. All we're waiting for now is the return of Christ. But all of the tribulations already happened. And what they would do is they would look in those, 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 those positions. Uh, let me see. Turn to, if you, uh, you get a minute, a couple minutes here. Turn to Matthew 24, if you're still on Matthew 13. So partial preterism, we'd look at Matthew 24, um, and you'd see these signs of the end of the age, and they would say, listen, if you look through the documents of the first century, and you look through Josephus, and you look through others, it sure seems like a lot of this was fulfilled in the destruction of the temple. In fact, when, when Rome invaded Israel and was coming to destroy the temple, a lot of the Christians in first century said, oh, it seems like this is what Jesus was talking about. We're out of here. And they actually left the city because it seemed like 
it was fulfilling what Jesus was talking about when the Romans came to destroy the temple. So they would say, it seems to fit that what, what Matthew's talking about here and this, these, these pictures of judgment that Revelation's talking about, that that is symbolic for the destruction of the temple. And so that, that is what, that's what they would look at at these sort of things, especially look at 24 verse 34. And this is where, like R.T. France in his commentary on Matthew really pushes this position um, where, because you have to wrestle with this verse, right? Jesus talks about all these things will happen. And then the verse 34, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, you have to say that the most natural reading, the surface reading of the text would be R.T. France saying, listen, if you're going to take this literally, it would say, this is talking about the generation he's talking to. That all of this was going to be fulfilled within the next generation. So they say it has to be within, the only thing that would describe it is 70 AD. So, so that is how... Um, that is how they would deal with, that's how, they, that's the, the preterist position. Then they would say similar to, um, to the post-millennial that, that some of the rest of this. So what are the problems here? Um, the problems are, is that first of all, Matthew 24 and 25 are more than the destruction of Jerusalem. What do you do? And RT France has to really stretch it. What do you do with verses 29 through 31? Let me read those to you. Immediately after the tribulation of those, immediately after, right? Not Partially, this happened apart, and then later it happened. Immediately, Jesus says, after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. Then will appear the, in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, or the sign which is the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man. They will see him coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather the elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. That didn't happen in 70 AD, right? So Jesus is saying more than just judgment here. He's saying it's judgment that's leading to his glorious return. And he, Jesus is saying that one happens right before the other. So there's a problem there, right? There's a problem of, of yeah, that there's some things that you can see that maybe fit I would say that 70 AD is a picture of the greater judgment to come. The Bible does that a lot, right? The Exodus is a picture of the greater Exodus. You look at Revelation, uses all kinds of Exodus imagery. Then, what, then you say, well, what do you do about that verse in 34, right? This generation. If you do a study through Matthew, every time Matthew uses this term generation, especially this generation, it's, it's often not used literally in this point of time, but talking about a type of generation, an evil generation, a wicked generation, a, a type of generation that will, that will reject God. And it's saying that that's going to continue until God's final judgment. I think that's the, the most natural reading is how you use Matthew. If you look every time how generation is used throughout Matthew, Matthew's use of generation is pretty consistent throughout the text there. And here's the biggest problem. Again, it comes down to Revelation. That, that this view is dependent on saying Revelation was written before 70 AD. This view is saying it had to be written because what Revelation is doing is Revelation is looking back to this tribulation and interpreting what happened at 70 AD which is, it's really pushing it because as you're looking at Revelation, it's one of the last books written in the New Testament. And, 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 and I would say that I don't think Revelation was written in the 200s or 300s like some liberal scholars, but 70 AD, I mean, if you're looking, it's, it's, it's a, uh, you're looking at, it's pushing it if you're looking at a really close time there. So I think there's some dating issues, there's some interpretive issues with the partial preterist, but I think that there are things that we want to, 
it should make us, it should make, it should sharpen us. So some things that should sharpen us from these positions. First of all, we should, we should appreciate and think it through the, the way that we think through the church age is saying, yeah, there is gospel expanse and that is important. It's not to, an expanse of where we're living in the millennium, but we need to, to appreciate those, those, those texts that they bring out. Second of all, we need to pre, you know, it helps us make sure we realize and ask questions on what do we do with this term, this generation, right? And a lot of sermons or a lot of commentaries are kind of skips by that. If you're a premillennial like our church, what do you do with that verse? We, you know, and, and not just we're going to read our theology into that verse, but is there a real good way to interpret that verse in light of what Matthew meant? I think there is, but, but it, that position really make us think through that. And so there's some things that we can learn from them and, and, and respect them, our brothers and sisters who would hold these positions. Any final questions there? Just a real simple question. What is pre about the premillennial? I mean, what is post? Yeah. I'm sorry, post. Post. Post in the sense of, of Jesus comes post. Jesus coming post. Post, yeah. Jesus coming post. Yeah, so Jesus is coming post the millennium. Yeah. yeah. What is the difference between people groups and geopolitical countries? Yeah, so if you're looking at geopolitical entities, um, Germany, right? Germany is a geo, or, or let's America is a geopolitical entity, right? Uh, you're saying that there is, is that, so if you're saying that this, the, uh, we're going to make the disciples of the nation of America, if you're saying people groups, you're saying that you're going to make that that, that uh, people groups are are often defined by um, boundaries of culture, right? Boundaries of culture and language. There's different ways of, that that you have boundaries within that. So you have different people groups in the sense of um, um, I'm trying to think because America there's there's such a, a blending. Maybe it's a little more difficult. Um, so we might have different languages uh, within within a, within a nation. You might have different. Sometimes it's used all the time of family groups, right? Of clans, clans, family groups, people groups, um, separated by language or culture, uh, and those sort of th- those sort of sense. So, those sort of senses. Yeah. Yeah. So what you're saying is Jesus is saying is that you're going to make disciples of these. The, you're going to bring. You're going to bring the church to make disciples within these people groups. Not that the nations are going to become. Christianized, right? That's, that's why I guess my point is because when we think nation, if we're thinking you're making disciples of all nations, right? I just think I think you just get a different picture. At least I, in my mind, I'm getting a different picture, which which I read in there too. Is that the way they're reading? They're reading this is that that every nation is going to become um, discipled. And so yeah. So in people groups in America, there are cultural groups. Yes. Yeah, I think you, you probably look more of a sense of like, um, with maybe, you know, that th- it's not only our, our, our majority people group, right? But you also look at things like Native American tribes, right? As a people group, probably you look at probably things like, like Mormonism and, 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 and that area is a probably a different type of people group, some different things like that. I'm guessing. I'm, I, missionology and some of the peop- some of the studies that do that focus a little bit more. I think Joshua Project is something online that they, they're online. They kind of monitor people groups and where, what kind of, uh, of impact that, that, that the church is having in different people groups around the world. So, so they wouldn't necessarily have their own government. Yes. Yeah. Culture, yeah. 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 All right. Let me pray for us, and then we gotta get into service here. Father, we just thank you as we uh, consider these things. We pray that it would sharpen us. We pray that it would humble us. We pray that it would edify us, Lord, as we would be edified even by our, our brothers and sisters or believers who would hold different positions in us, Lord, to make us think more deeply about your word and even about the the scriptures that we would that we'd study and, and hold to in our position to, to, to think through making sure we are interpreting it as, as, as you have inspired according to these authors. And so we thank you for that, and we do praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.